Good morning. Well, every week it feels like there's another opinion poll which drives political debate away from policy and turns politics into a perpetual horse race. In last year's UK general election, the obsessive talk of coalition options driven by polls dominated a campaign which in the end was won outright by the Conservatives. Could our polls contain the same fundamental flaws? And given their malign influence on what passes for political debate, is there a case to ban them completely? In studio, Richard Caldwell is Managing Director of Red Sea. Claire Grady is a former editor of the Irish Independent. Jared Cowlin is a columnist. Jared Howlin is a columnist with the Irish Examiner and Public Affairs Consultant. And on the line is David Cowling, former editor of Political Research at the BBC and currently presenting a series on BBC Radio 4 about opinion polls. So tell us what you think about the polls and in particular if they influence how you vote. 53106 for 30 cent for text and at talking point NT for tweets and hashtag NTFM. Um, I think we're going to start now with the experience in the UK. Uh, good morning, David Cowling. Um, I think there were 92 polls taken during the general election campaign, almost all of which failed to show how well the Conservatives were doing. Will you explain to us how they got it wrong and if you think those polls influenced how people voted in the end? Thank you. Um, yes, there were 92 polls. Um in the end, I should explain that the Conservatives won with a majority of about 7%, 7% lead over Labour. But as far as the polls were concerned, 17 of the 92 said that it was a dead heat. About 42 of them said they were, that Labour was ahead. And the remainder, about 30-odd, said that there were Conservative leads, but none of them got anywhere near the, the seven-point actual lead. What was the impact of that? Well, for six weeks, in a very, very important general election campaign, we were all dancing to the wrong tune. What we were doing were we were obsessed, as you, you were talking about earlier, about the horse race. All of the polls seemed to indicate that there would be a coalition. So everybody was talking about who is going to get into bed with whom in a coalition. And the last few weeks of the campaign in the UK were taken up with talk about whether the Scottish National Party would do a co- be in coalition with Labour if they were in the largest single party. And so the whole six weeks was utterly obsessed about this. And virtually no discussion was taking place about the critical issues of holding the government to account for what it intended to do over the next five years. And why did they get it wrong? Well, the inquiry that was just uh, last Tuesday here in in the UK um, that looked into it, an independent inquiry of very distinguished academics, they looked through all of the different bits and pieces that might have accounted for it. But the principal argument they had, I think, was that the the difficulty of polling companies to get representative samples, what they were doing is that they were getting too many young, actively engaged people who tended to be a bit more labour than the others, and too few really older respondents who were more likely to be conservative. And therefore, in that sense, it was producing all of these pro-Labour results. And the other quick thing to say is that regardless of what age groups that they managed to get hold of, the pollsters, they were getting far too many people who were politically engaged, people who, when you rang them up and said, I'm calling to you about a, pin- about a political opinion poll, they think Christmas had come early. Um, but for, their, for others, the people who would think, oh, my goodness, um, no thanks, 
uh, they weren't getting hold of them. And so that, that distorted the sample as well. Uh, did the inquiry manage to show if the polls actually influenced voters? So, for example, you know, maybe the idea of a hung parliament persuaded people to fall back on the Conservatives in order to avoid that situation. It's, it's a very important and crucial question, but I'm afraid the inquiry, it wasn't in their remit. And also it's having been involved in opinion polling for more years than I care to remember. Um, it's a very difficult one to to judge. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot of conjecture. A lot of people have opinions on the subject, and I think some of the opinions appear to me to be reasonably persuasive, namely that if you spend all your time being told that, for example, there's going to be uh, a Labour deal with the, the Scottish National Party, and you don't particularly fancy that, then you won't vote Labour. Mm. Or that if you think that there's going to be a coalition, and, the, and, and it isn't just straight Labour versus Conservative, and we feel well, I would vote Labour, but then maybe I'll vote Lib Dem or I'll vote Green because there's no real problem about this because there's going to be a coalition and Labour's going to be you know the leading party anyway. So I could imagine, and I think in common sense, it's not unreasonable to think that it will have influenced people. But in terms of answering your question, into is there proof? No, I'm afraid there isn't. Uh, Richard Caldwell read Sea Polls. Presumably you were taking a close look at that um, inquiry result in England yeah, this absolutely. week. So how do you insulate your polls from making that mistake, not accessing those older voters? Yeah, well, the older, vo- older voter problem is actually uh, a result of Internet polling, which isn't done here at all. Um, no Irish company does uh, Internet polling or no professional Irish company does Internet polling. And so the older voter piece isn't so much of an issue for us. Of course, it is important still that we make sure that the people that we're interviewing are not political animals, effectively, uh, as uh, David said. And that's very much in the younger voters, because the the people we do struggle to reach the most are, you know, 18 to 24 year olds who don't want to take part in our surveys. And of course, if we force ourselves to try and find those people, what we can end up with is an issue that we have people who are actually more politically inclined than you would normally. Do you pick people for being representative of the population or being representative of the voting population? Well, uh, we at Red Sea start with a sample of people who are representative of all adults. That's the start point. But we do then ask about likelihood to vote and we do a lot of analysis on trying to remove from our figures that are published people who aren't going to go and vote. As I would hasten to add, did all the companies in the UK. So that's (laughs) not something different to that. Um, But very much what we are trying to do and all those companies, by the way, are trying to do is get the result right, by the way. Professional pollsters are not in the game of trying to get the result wrong or mislead people. And one of the points I would say uh, that you were just discussing there about the influence of the polls, what's quite interesting from this analysis is that it was clear that there was no late swing to the Tories. If the argument that was just being put forward is made that polls influence people and that they wouldn't want to see Labour in, in coalition, then surely there should have been a late swing to the Tories, which didn't happen.
Right. Now, Texteran says opinion polls are increasingly used by pro-government media to big up small rises for government and blow out of proportion small decreases for opposition, both within the margin of error. They are a political tool. Um, I get that subjective, isn't Uh, it? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, when it's the other way around, the the, the non-government parties big them up as well. And the key thing for us that we keep banging on about is the longer term trend, not the change month. I mean, we wish that the media didn't report on, oh, someone's gone up 2% or down 1%. You know, really, it's about the longer-term trend. Has Fine Gael gone up 6 or 7% in the last four months? That's important. And Claire Grady, that's really the accusation, that uh, the polls themselves are just corrosive to the political discourse because it, it becomes a horse race and it's not about substantive issues. I mean, to a certain extent, I, I see that point of view, but I, I, I would be coming from the point of view that I think, you know, every media organisation wants to get as much information out there as possible and people are interested to know. And I mean, certain, I know political parties are interested to know, but the population has, you know, a right to, if they consume media, to find out what what is the latest thinking on this? What is the latest sort of, you know what I mean? You, and they can they can make their own minds up about how valid it is. What, but are perhaps uh, journalists and editors in that more interested than the regular person on the street? That that's an insatiable desire that you have, but perhaps Joe Voter doesn't. Well, I think you know, of course the you know, editors are more interested, yeah. probably in the kind of the, the little fluctuations, every little fluctuation in politics. But that's kind of the gig. That's the, the sort of the job of it. So they do try to gauge how interested people are. But you know what I mean, like. This this time coming up to an election, I mean, it is going to dominate the newspapers. It is going to dominate the news headlines and stuff like that. But I think it's a very valid thing. I mean, you're right. Richard is right that kind of the, the significance is the trend, not the particular one. But every time there's a poll published now, you will notice in newspapers, which I don't think used to be the case a few years ago, you will get the previous poll. You know, you get the previous five polls. So the trends are put forward. Do they sell newspapers? I'm not sure that they, I mean, they they do in, if they're, I think if there's a dramatic difference, if there's an unexpected result, I think people do sit up and take notice. But it's just all part of the job of bringing, I mean, a lot of newspapers now won't necessarily lead on a a poll. Um, They will it during an election time. But, you know what I mean, out of election time, out out of the immediate, um, before the the campaign date, uh, they won't. But, you know what I mean, people are interested. And a lot of the time they they don't just say who's ahead. There's other issues that go into an opinion poll. If a newspaper um, commissions an opinion poll, they tend to look then as well. What are the issues that people are talking about? What are they interested in? And we'll write about that as well. It's not purely who's ahead in the polls. So Jared Howland, um, it's all for the good of the people to know what, um, how they're feeling. <laughs> no, it's, it's for the bottom line of the media organisations and their brand who commissioned the polls and it's for the bottom line and the brand of the polling companies who um, carry them out. It's a very successful business model for both. Um, that's not a reason to be against them, but it is a perspective that you need to keep firmly, uh, you know, keep the rose-coloured goggles off here. Um, this is not a, you know, a really a public service thing per se. Uh, though I'm, I'm, you know, I think the, the the case for banning polls in in the lead up to an election, which was uh, put on the agenda by Noel Dempsey once years ago, I mean that's never going to happen. So it's like the weather; it's here and and it's not going away. But my problem is not the polls. It is more with media and how they are treated. Uh, that it is, if you like, increasingly used, it seems to me, apart from the brand bumping, 
which is not a you know a wrong thing in itself because all media is, uh, are commercial organisations, but it is more about how it is used for media who, particularly print media who commission them in the first instance. Print is under pressure in terms of circulation, in terms of advertising. It's under pressure internally in terms of editorial resources, and this increasingly substitutes for writing newspapers rather than being what once would have been considered delivering good newspapers. Now, you worked on previous Fianna Fáil campaigns and the political parties would do their own polling, don't they? Avoraciously. (laughs) Did you ever notice a difference between the political party polling and the newspaper polling? Yes, um, there, there would have been because, of course, a political party uses one polling company. Uh, of which there are several, right? Um, by and large, I, I, I think. Uh, so there are, if you look at the various polls um, that are associated with the, you know, particularly the the um, the Irish Times, the Sunday Business Post, and the Sunday Times, respectively, three newspapers, three polling companies. There are repeated differences uh, between those polls and those organisations. So the same, which is Richard. a posi- which is a positive thing, I think. I mean, one of the findings of the. Uh, British election study that we've just been talking about mm. is that all the polls said the same thing, which was a bit of a concern for people because they they Especially had this when they were wrong. They had this herding effect of all saying the same thing. And actually, if we're doing random samples and we're doing it properly, we should see differences, which we do between right, the different but actually, companies. but if that can be important. And I'll come back to that. I just want to go to David Cowling on on one question about that: that how you ask a question can influence the outcome. So, for example, David. David, Britain elects. I saw a thing that they did where they asked people in a poll, where did they support reducing the voting age from 18 to 16? And that just got 37 percent support. In the same survey, they asked people about did they support giving 16 to 17 year olds the right to vote? And that got 52 percent support. So how important is it how you ask the question? It's critically important and I mean the polling industry certainly in the United Kingdom has been going since the late 1930s and it has been a perennial issue about question wording. You're absolutely right and all of those years of experience of polling are littered with spectacular examples of questions that uh, really were just daft or, or just brought about results. I can remember in the 2008 financial crisis uh, that there were two questions by the same polling company within a fortnight of each other, in which one uh, asked about whether the, you know the, the taxpayer should prop up the banks, and lo and behold, most people said no. And then the second one said, you know, should taxpayers' money be be used to maintain, you know, to sustain the banking system? And you know, lo and behold, loads of people said yes. So actually, how you word the question, of course, is important. Um, but I don't think we have too many examples of Mavericks because it's really the daily bread and butter of the polling companies. And as Richard would be the first to testify, they have no interest in getting daft answers. They want, they're trying to secure the most important answer because, of course, their reputation rests on that and they won't be playing games if they can avoid it. Now, you began your programme on Radio 4 last week um, with the description of two questions that voters were asked about particular pieces of legislation. One was about a monetary bill and one was about agriculture. Um, Perhaps you'd explain that to our listeners, please. Well, it was, uh, I opened the the, the programme, as you say, by by asking uh, about these two bills and what people thought about them. And then I turned to Professor Sturgis, who was the um, 
chair of the uh, inquiry and he said, well, you know, 11% of people had quite strong feelings about the agricultural bill and about another 12% had fairly strong feelings about the monetary bill. And I asked him, well, what's surprising about that? And he said, well, neither bill exists. Yeah. Yeah. So the point he was trying to make was that sometimes we need to be careful that if people have, do people have mushy views, as he put it, do, you know, are they being polite about answering and do they always think through in a sense, some of the questions that we're asking them. Now, on the difference, Richard, between the different polling companies, uh, texters Pat and Cork says the Red Sea weighting takes into account how you previously voted. And he claims this inflates Fine Gael and Labour. Now, first of all, is that one of the differences that there would be between your polls and other polls? And how do you justify it? Do, is, is his allegation correct? Um, no, his allegation isn't correct, <laughs> uh, of course. Um, what we do in everything that we do is trying to get the result right. Let's, let's be clear about that. There's no reason for us mm-hmm. to try and bias the result to one party or the other. It doesn't do us any favours in the long run. Uh, the aim is to get the result right. But there are a couple of things that we do take account of in our polls that some of the others don't. The first one is likely voters. To be honest, if someone says they're definitely not going to go and vote, to take their vote into account is a, is a little bit like that piece that we were just hearing about. It's, it's someone's opinion on something they're not going to go and do. Mm. So they need to be taken out of the equation. Uh, now, it's difficult to be 100% clear as to who is definitely going to go and vote or not. So it's not an easy process, but we try and use means to remove those who definitely aren't going to go and vote and only look at our results by those who will actually go and vote. So that's the first thing we do. Uh, we do then also look at our sample because we don't have people or newspapers who are prepared to spend €50,000 to do a random probability sample. We have to do the best we can with the sampling that we Is do. Is that what a poll costs, a paper? Um, no, I mean, a poll that we do would cost a paper a lot less than that. The point is that what what that um, process in the UK has shown is that if you did do proper random probability sampling, you would get a more accurate result. And that's absolutely fair. Oh, I see. But you would yeah. have to spend huge amounts of money for every poll that you wanted to do on that case. Okay? Right. So, what, so just to explain, random probability sampling means that you start uh, at one address, for instance, on a face-to-face sample. Then you every seventh house you knock on the door. But you can't leave them. You have to go back to those people at least seven times to try and, and get an answer from those before you can let that person go. Now, what we do is if we ring someone and they're not there, we move on to try and find someone who's the same profile. We don't try and ring that person back over and over again. Okay, so that's the difference. And that's where the cost saving is made. But sorry, just to go back to the other points, the things that we do um, in terms of waiting by pass vote, we we look at our sample when we do a sample, okay, and we we control it by things like age, gender, um, region, and class to make sure it's representative of everyone in the population. So we make sure we have the right number of men, the right number of women, the right number of eighteen-year-olds, the right number of people in Cork, the right number. So we, you know, all those things go into place, and then we look at our sample and we ask them how they voted at the last election. Now we know what the result was at the last election, so it should match if our sample is accurate. It should match what the result was at the last election. And sometimes it doesn't. Okay, right. Most of the time it does. Do, do so people do you change lie? the sample then? No. no, we don't change the sample, no. <laughs> so what happens is sometimes it's not... Now, when I say it doesn't, it's like small percentages out. So, you know, 3% out or 2% out here for one party or another. 
on how they voted last time. Now, part of that can be down to the fact that people don't remember how they voted last time. So someone who, for instance, and I don't want to cast aspersions, but someone who voted green last time now kind of goes, oh, no, I didn't vote green last time. You know, they've just kind of forgotten and they've moved on. Or you can see this effect where, you know, people say they voted for the party that's just won, you know, because it's, you know, a a popular thing to do. So some of that can go. So some of it is faulty recall. Yeah. Okay, but some of it is the fact that our sample is maybe not quite right, and this is all about this point of the in the British election, for instance, that you know you've got too many Labour voters in your sample in the first place. So that's what this is trying to address, and all we do is we take our sample and we say, okay, if we know that Fine Gael got you know this percent at the last election, but we're out by two percent, we wait to halfway between the two, so we're only just tweaking our sample to make it more accurate that's not waiting the result back at all it's just what they voted for last time to make sure that it matches as closely as possible the actual result last time and therefore getting a more accurate sample Claire could would you not accept the point though about how it influences voters I mean I'm thinking particularly of somebody like the Greens at the moment where they never get a look in and that would affect people because they don't want to vote for somebody who might not seem to be relevant. Yeah, I mean, I do believe, you know what I mean, that opinion polls do influence voters, but so do leaders' debates, you know what I mean, televised debates, so do you know, interviews that they hear on the radio, and they're just as valid. You know what I mean, people still have to make up their own minds. I mean, how real is it? I mean, during the last presidential election, you had the, um, you know, the, the candidates' debate on Pat Kenny. Now, something mm-hmm. happened during the course of of that debate that, you know what I mean, there was a tweet and there was an inquiry into it afterwards. But the, some of the parties involved said it really changed people's minds. People who had been in a particular position before the debate ended up way down the leaderboard afterwards. So, and, and that was something that kind of, you know, it was a very arbitrary thing, an unexpected thing. So yes, events happen that change people's minds. Polls can change people's minds, but that is not a reason for for not doing them. I mean, Everything that people are exposed to during an election campaign is designed to change their minds. I mean, a good, you know what I mean, poster ad is going to change people's minds. Why is that any worse than a poll? I mean, what's 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 invalid about a poll? Uh, Jared Howland, um, you were describing, I think, was it the 2007 mm. uh, Fianna Fáil campaign where they were seen to be doing quite poorly in the polls? Yeah, I mean, the 2007 election, Fianna Fáil was, uh, Fianna Gael was doing very well. Fianna Fáil was doing very poorly. It was a... Uh, campaign that was not going well for most of that time and in the end um, though Fine Gael did get significant number of extra seats uh, Fianna Fáil very unexpectedly uh, was, was, was back in government and I think the influence uh, of, uh, of opinion polls in, in that election were twofold. Firstly I think uh, there was no love for Fianna Fáil. There was no positive desire to re-elect them, frankly, at all, despite claims to the contrary mm. afterwards. Uh, but that when the alternative was looked at very closely, which was the first instinct, uh, people at the end pulled back uh, because people are fundamentally conservative. They're also, by the way, mm. fundamentally selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, weighing their own interests, I- in a given case, um, they, they tend to become protective 
rather than risk taking. Uh, and I think that is what happened in 2007. And also in 2007, I mean, I remember um, very experienced senior uh, ministers coming back into us in headquarters and saying, look, we're looking at the polls. Yes, we're in the open sewer, allegedly, but actually I'm out on the doors. It's just not that bad. Now, I maybe I've lost my marbles. I've completely lost my touch, but my personal, etc. So we had this dichotomy that we were getting antidotal stories back from our own people, which you weren't quite sure what to believe. Um, so there, right. there you are. Um, have we still David Cowling with us? Um, David, just a final question for you to let you go after this, I'm afraid. On what Richard uh, Caldwell was talking about with false memory, uh, I know certainly in a judicial context, that's a huge problem with people being convicted on serious crimes because of supposed eyewitness accounts. Um, wh- to what extent is that a problem that you've come across in your polling? <coughs> Well, it's one of the standard measures used by quite a number of polling companies, um, which uh, we've looked at. But it is standard. Uh, it is used, uh, as, as Richard describes. It's much more common, I think, in the UK than in in in, uh, in the Republic. And I, to, I mean, it's being looked at. But I, I think there would be a great reluctance um, to uh, abandon it because it's considered to be quite an important indicator. Could I leave you with one Please. statistic, yes. if, you'll, if you'll forgive me? Yeah. Um, one of the things that came out of the inquiry was this, that in the 65 years between 1945 and 2010, there were 3,000 Westminster voting intention polls published. In the five years that followed, 2010 to 2015, there were 1,900 Nice. Part of the problem I think all of us are facing is that we're not swimming in polls, we're drowning in them. I don't know whether it's the same in the public, <laughs> but there, there's a ghastly future for me to leave you to look at. <laughs> but plenty of work for some people, though, David Cowling. Thanks a million for joining us. Um, and when we come back after the break, we'll be back with Richard and Clara and Derek. <laughs> Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about opinion polls. In studio, Richard Caldwell is Managing Director of Red Sea. Claire Grady is a former editor of the Irish Independent. And Jared Howland is a columnist with the Irish Examiner. And tell us what you think on 53106 for 30 cent. Colette in Dublin has texted in to say, I recently did one of those telephone opinion polls. I was asked my age. And when I said 53, the person from the market research company said, oh, you don't sound that old. <laughs> Perhaps an opinion she should have kept to herself. A couple <laughs> of years ago, I was called by the Sunday Independent to do a poll. And I was so paranoid at the time. I was convinced of some trick but I said I'd go along with it anyway just yeah. to see what the questions were and it was interesting to be on the other side of it and listening to how the questions were phrased so um, I don't know if they ever actually included me in it but uh, <laughs> I haven't had um, a poll for I mean I don't know when I was last it must be 15 years ago and we were you know we were just talking it's landlines you know a lot of the polls are done on I never answer my I have a landline because it's part of the bundle I have I signed up for. Yeah. But I never answer that phone and anytime I do answer the phone it's somebody trying to sell me something so I yeah. don't bother. Nobody rings me on that. So I just wonder, you know I mean are polling companies still using landlines or how they well, get their Well Richard, sample? what's the story? Uh, no, I mean 
actually, funnily enough, Ireland was at the forefront of the whole landline mobile issue well before the, in, it became an issue in the United States even. So the number of people here who uh, don't have a landline and only have a mobile phone is uh, at around 30 35% now. Uh, and as you rightly say, there are lots of people who have a landline but don't use it either. But we've overcome that by doing random mobile sampling. So we uh, create random digit dial numbers of mobile phone numbers and we ring those and uh, about 70% of our calls are now direct to mobile. And do you get those numbers from the telephone companies or you're just literally, so you they start, are random? So you start off with a directory of mobile numbers and then you... Where ran- do you get it? You random... Oh, lots of different places you can get them from, yeah. But you don't get a geographical location there. No, which is you, why which you is, have yeah. to keep... Um, uh, you, you, I mean, you should. If you totally randomly call people, you yes. should end up with a regional... Fallout, course, okay, yeah. but you do have we do have. Don't forget, still thirty or forty percent of landline sampling mm. as well. And we ask people where they live, so of course that's another quota that we have. But no, what happens is you take numbers. You never use the numbers you ever get from a directory. You change the last digit by plus one or plus two or plus three. So you totally randomise the numbers in the same. And we do the same thing with landline numbers. So we don't know whether we're ringing who we're ringing, where yeah. we're ringing, and it could be an answer phone we're ringing or a fax line we're ringing, um, but it means that we're totally random and we can get ex-directory people, for instance. I'm afraid just because you're ex-directory doesn't yeah. mean we can't call you. It just means you're not in the directory. Uh, <laughs> right. And we can get everyone, anyone. And what's your response rate? Uh, it's okay. I mean, you know, there well, is an okay? issue um, in terms of we would use quite a large sample, maybe 10,000 leads at least to get 1,000 numbers. Um, But because you're ringing and because you're trying to do it quickly, okay, you need to do your sample quickly, you move on to the next number. You don't keep ringing. And that is one of the issues that was brought up in the British election, that if you went back to the same people, you know, a lot more times, you might find uh, that you're getting the better person in your poll. But again, this is a cost versus, uh, you know, versus process. Ger, didn't Fianna Fáil always have a problem uh, where their uh, poll was, their poll numbers understated what they actually got in an election? Well, I mean, there are are two parts to that phenomenon. One is prior to 2007, during the 2002-2007 government, the, the Irish Times particularly at that time of their polling operation, controversially weighted Fianna Fáil vote uh, downwards to take account for, for some supposed phenomenon. Of course, a lot of my colleagues were then were in a complete dizzy and there was all sorts of writings of letters and theses <laughs> back and forwards to the Irish Times about all this. Um, I'm not sure it made much of a difference in the end. But uh, the other half of this phenomenon, by the way, is the extraordinary act that after the crash, when Fianna Fáil was in the sin bin, notwithstanding the fact that the people of Ireland voted for them three times in a row, nobody could it be found who actually did. <laughs> yes. uh, so it, it yes. is strange, you know. Uh, but I think uh, in relation to people's stated voting intentions, I think it, it, it's a bit like, you know, saying that they are in favour or against, uh, you know, the, the monetary something bill in England yeah. when no such thing exists. They feel compelled to express some sort of altruistic view when in fact people's voting intentions are a lot less altruistic than they are prepared to admit in public. They are fundamentally selfish which is to say that they are driven by you know their needs as they see them and then they you know they extrapolate from their personal circumstances what they believe the country needs and they convince themselves of course that they are uh, answering uh, acting patriotically Uh, but that's actually how the psyche works. 
Yeah, we, is, is I was it, I was talking about I mean, Enda it's Kenny. Saying you need to understand Saint Augustine, to Saint you know John Calvin, really to get to the heart of the black soul of the night <laughs> that drives people. It's, it's a deeply pessimistic I view, know, which is like, absolutely true and highly humorous. Claire, if you go to Castle Bar, the people there will be given out yards about Enda Kenny because he didn't deliver half the roads and Astro pitch turf or pitches. Uh, no, because deliver as much as pork flame exactly. delivers in that part. <laughs> Country, so and I'm yet, sorry. probably, if he did sign off on a load of grants and had loads of roads built down in Mayo, the headlines in the papers would be, oh, outrageous. Oh, you know. absolutely. Sure, it's going on yeah, now. So yeah. there is that gap between what the media thinks about something and what people, who the actual voters think about something. Well, I mean, and Jared is right. I mean, that, that whole business about um, Fianna Fáil uh, support being underestimated, consistently underestimated. Now, I'm wondering, you know, is this going to happen to Fine Gael this time? Because it Fianna Fáil it was a lot of people I, I, I imagine you know, and again I don't have a poll on this but but people sort of not wanting to be seen to be saying that we're voting for the government we want to get that shower out and that could well be going on at the moment you know disappointment in the government you know I mean whatever you know I mean, the, the, the economic situation has and to what extent it's changed or not people will be saying publicly and in conversation look they really let us down we were supposed to have changed that's the debate the discourse is going on but so, so, so we could be getting Fine Gael vote being underestimated at this stage. So that is just one of the dangers you know, of polls. And you, there's nothing you can really do about that because people will, as Jared says, you know, at, at the end of the day, they're going to vote. You know, they're going to, going to go into that booth and vote for what is in their interest. So whatever about, you know, to be kind of Fine Gael, you know what I mean? I know they're trying to get the message of economic stability and everything out and that's being obviously contested mm. and people have had very bad experiences, but they may go into the poll and think, are interested the booth and say well look you know what I mean we're on the right track it suits me yeah. you know what I mean and, I don't, and I don't think it's so much people lying to polling mm. companies as people lying to themselves yes mm. yeah well, w- one of the interesting Richard. things that we've done in kind of other analysis over and above just looking at you know how people might vote in the top line is you know talking to people obviously in more qualitative sense and really there is a very um, interesting view among people out there at the moment which is that they don't want the country to go back to the way we were but they want their life to go back to the way they were, okay, in, <laughs> right. in, in the good times, you know. And so that that absolutely mm. sums that up very much. Yeah, um, it's and complete hypocrisy. Jared, and on that point, Richard, of perhaps the understating of the Fine Gael vote, uh, we did a show a couple of weeks ago about the Republican Party race. And, you know, Donald Trump is doing so well in the polls. And uh, one commentator was making the point, look, no one's actually voted for Donald Trump yet. Yeah. It's much easier to say. Oh, yeah, I'm voting for him. He's great. You might change your mind on a ballot paper. I wondered, could we be observing that phenomenon here with the independent vote? Yeah, well, I mean, we've had a a theory that has been widely um, put out there that during the midterm, people said they were going to vote independence because actually they just didn't want to say they were going to vote for any of the main parties. So they didn't want to say they were going to vote Fianna Fáil because there was still a kind of reluctance to say that from the past. They didn't want to say they were going to vote for the current government because they were annoyed at the fact that they'd had to go through austerity. They couldn't bring themselves to say (laughs) they were going to vote Sinn Féin and therefore they kind of said, well, look, I don't really know, but I'm not going to vote for any of them as far as I'm concerned. Now, the reality is that a lot of those independents are already in our polls dribbling back 
to government parties or to Sinn Féin or to anyone else. In other words, that independent bloc that was so large is going to dissipate, I would say, you know, as we get closer. Jared. And of course, you see, we, have, we don't have a general election. We have 40 general elections mm. in 40 constituencies. And the critical thing on the ballot paper is the name and the picture of the candidate besides Absolutely. the party brand. And, you know, uh, p- parties are often less popular than their well-established candidates and TDs and local constituencies and, are. And that's very much the case for Fianna Fáil. I mean, yeah. that's one of the reasons why Fianna Fáil is underrepresented in the polls, because people can't say, I don't want to vote for Fianna Fáil, the party, but when they look at the candidates, they go, that candidate is the guy I know who I like, who happens to be in Fianna Fáil, so I'm going to vote for him. And if you take, for example, uh, the long-standing 30-odd years of TD, based in an escorty John Brown, he's retiring, Fianna Fáil TD is retiring at this election. You know, Fianna Fáil might have been in the sin bin as a brand, but he always came home. Mm. Again and again and again, because as an individual in that location, he's very well got. And you can multiply that for a whole range of party candidates of different hues and stripes around the country. Um, And the only poll I think that's really worked it is a name based constituency poll. Yeah. Um, And Claire, then there was talk as well about the impact in this election of the gender quota, that you were going to have women out who hadn't run before and didn't have that incumbency thing to carry them. Um, How do you see that panning out? Yeah, I mean... it is. I mean, Jared is right. I mean, of course, it's kind of, you know what I mean, a big influence, the familiar face, mm. the person with the proven track record. And it is a bit of a problem. I mean, you know what I mean, mm. that the, if there are people, but there's not that many people that have forced onto the ballot paper that, you know what I mean, like th- there would have been new candidates anyhow. I mean, people retire, there are changes and stuff like that. So I don't know whether it, it will even itself out at the end. I mean, it is it is a difficulty in any constituency if you've got one party that's got an established established candidate that's the right age and has run before and has been elected and the other party then they may you know in previous elections they might not have had anybody that they can put forward you know what I mean it's a new person anyhow so that I presume balances out between constituencies Okay well look I'll take another quick break now when we come back the 18 to 24 year olds where are they? And welcome back to Talking Point and we're talking about opinion polls today Richard Caldwell is Managing Director of Red Sea Claire Grady is a former editor of the Irish Independent and Jared Howland is a columnist with the Irish Examiner and a public affairs consultant. Um, so Richard, the 18 to 24 year olds, are they going to show up or not? What do you think? Well, they're far less likely to vote than any other cohort of demographics and, and older voters are far more likely to go and vote. And that's why when we do our analysis taking out the people who aren't likely to vote, you do get this shift of a slightly lesser Sinn Féin vote because they have a younger voter profile and a slightly higher Fine Gael vote because they have a slightly older voter profile. Right, but when the marriage referendum was on, everybody said, ah, here cometh the young voter and they shall stay and we shall see them at the next general election. Yeah, because, and it? they were excised about that issue, but I'm not sure that that necessarily means they're suddenly going to get exercised about the next election, to be honest with you. Um, Jared Hallen, do, what do you think about those young voters? Will they show up? And there was all this stuff as well about home to vote, which was... Um, actually illegal but nobody seemed to mind Well it's only much. illegal if yeah. people were away beyond a certain point of yeah. time and I think some of them might not have been uh, but in relation to younger people who don't traditionally turn out to vote I think the 
a marriage referendum was an exception and I don't expect him to see them there in greater numbers at the next election than they would have been usually in the past. And a critical issue is turnout. There was a big spike in turnout in 2011. I do not believe that will be repeated again in the next election, the next few weeks. And I think that has particular implications for parties of the left, but particularly the protesting left especially. Mm. And the combination of a lower turnout, A, across the board, and, and B, uh, fewer under 25s uh, showing up, that is going to have a significant effect in a, in a country where literally, to all that tired old truism, a handful of votes and a handful of constituencies will ultimately decide to shape the next government. Oh, sure. Did you see there was a court case there about a local election countdown in Kerry with that hung on two Dan or three Kiley. Yes. Councillor, former senator and now the whole thing has to be counted again years later. Yes. Yeah, and it was on a tiny By experts in hieroglyphics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I love that they kept the paper vote. I was always against the electronic like, voting. Claire. What, yeah. what, what I think is so astonishing and a little bit upsetting about the you know, the apathy, the voter apathy among 18 to 24 year olds is that never before has there been a generation so willing to express their opinions, um, you know, in Twitter, Facebook, all the social media and to have their say. I mean, we talked about newspapers and, you know, to traditional legacy media earlier on but they all now have to open up you know, to an online kind of you know, have your say have your comment and stuff like that but the one area <laughs> the one arena in which it'll make a difference which yes. is at the you know what I mean at the polling booth they just don't do it I mean it's, it's extraordinary they don't see any contradiction between their behaviour in commenting on everything in sharing the intimate their intimate views on everything to do with their life but an area where they're you know what I mean they're constitutionally entitled to really express an opinion in a way that could make a difference they don't bother it's yeah. extraordinary yeah. but sorry can we just talk Dirt. about money Yes, please. please. Yes, because what's driving all this slew of polling in in Ireland is public money. It is also uh, calcifying the political system as is because it hugely favours incumbency. Basically, where is the money for the polling coming from? That's not from the newspapers. It should be said, but the vast bulk of polling beneath the public surface that's been carried out by political parties and which obviously polling companies get getting a slice of that cake is coming from the parliamentary allowances given to the incumbent political parties and TDs. It is a sum I think of about 12-13 million euro a year not all of it by the way spent on polling a lot of no, it I was going to say no, 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 I want to be nearly. clear about that but <laughs> a, lot of it, a lot of it is spent on wages for staff and so yeah. forth. Critically it cannot be spent on campaigning Critically, none of that pot or pie is available for a new insurgent party that's trying to break into the system. Desi O'Malley has said, absolutely truthfully, that there could be no possibility of a progressive Democrats emerging now because, of course, then you you could have corporate donations to parties. People could give reasonably large sums. Uh, And it is an outcome of the tribunal where there was an obvious scandal uh, that we solved that problem, and it was a real problem, by this application of a solution that's created enough. So what is your solution? Because how, you see, look look at it the other way, that if there was a small party that wanted to start up, why should they get a big chunk of public money? No, I'm not saying they should get any public money because they haven't yet got any votes. But I'm saying it is absolutely fundamentally wrong. It is a real barrier to free speech and participation that they cannot collect money in a completely obligatory, transparent way. The problem that the tribunals... uh, identified was money being passed around the system hugger mugger. 
That was corruption. That was scandal. I believe there should be a much greater freedom to contribute your money uh, to political parties or candidates if you want, provided every penny of every contribution is always on the public record. Mm. And I think that would be one part of solving this problem. Mm. Um, Richard, coming and back. And more money for polling companies. Yes. <laughs> and, and, Absolutely, I'm all for it. And <laughs> on that, um, the commercial reality behind opinion polls. Mm. Now, Claire was denying earlier that they were selling newspapers. What <laughs> yeah. is the benefit to, well, say, I, I, your business and, in your opinion, the newspaper business of polls? Um, I mean, first of all, the polls that we conduct for um, newspapers and so on really don't make any money in themselves. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty much done at cost. Uh, they're done relatively cost effectively. But that is because obviously we know that they are beneficial. I mean, they're, they're a form of advertising effectively for our brand, uh, particularly in terms of, you know, accuracy and getting the result right and giving us the reputation that we want. Right, if are, we get them yes. right, they are extremely dangerous as well to our brand, because if we get it wrong, then that can have a negative impact. But what it really is, is the media coverage that the poll generates. So the media, as we've heard earlier, loves a poll, goes quite mad about it. Uh, it's all over every uh, media source when a poll's released. And of course, that is effectively free advertising for the newspaper and for the polling company. Facilitated by radio stations, Sarah. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. I know, I'm part of it. It's weird sometimes watching something and thinking it's all wrong and yet being a part of it too. Um, Claire, I'll just give you the very last word on it. Look, David Cowling was talking about the huge increase in polling that's been done. And fine, you can't ban opinion polling but do you not think maybe there's too many there should be maybe just hold back maybe just have two or three during a campaign well, who decides what polls are going to be done then what, what media organisation there's been a proliferation of media organisations in comparison to what there used to be there used to be X number of newspapers two radio stations and that was it in this country it's very difficult you can say yeah it would be great kind of we only had you know three or four big opinion polls you can't stop it and the danger with trying to stop it is that they're going to go on anyhow and we're going to get sort of results that are coming from political parties. Not okay, so watch out, listeners. There'll be more and more and more and more. Many thanks for listening. Jared Howland, Richard Cawa, Claire Grady, thanks for listening. And thanks to Marion Kennedy, Ronan Bratnock, Joe Coffey, and James McNeil, who are on the team. Bobby Kerr is up next, and thank you for listening.